Hello, this is Michael Canfield, and thank you for joining us today on The Dog Watch, where we consider dogs, watches, life in the field, and go wherever curiosity takes us. Today, we extend our home range significantly by speaking with Anandita Bhadra, a research in Kolkata, India. Although difficult to estimate, the world population of free-ranging dogs is likely more than 200 million individuals and composes the majority of all dogs. We discuss with Anandita the nature of free-ranging dogs, their origin, behavior, and how they are similar to and different from domestic dogs. We also discuss the communication and social network of free-ranging dogs and explore how they interact with humans. What emerges is an understanding that may challenge your idea of the very nature of dogs. Before we start our conversation, please take a moment to visit the On The Dog Watch website and also review the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Our featured dog today on the hashtag feed is the German wire-haired pointer, an individual named Grizzly. If you check out our photos on the Instagram hashtag, you can see that it appears that this dog can actually fly. Although it, of course, cannot, it can certainly jump a long way off a dock, which reveals the strength of its legs and body. These dogs are excellent pointers that will also retrieve and have webbed feet for swimming. They are slightly larger than the German short-haired pointer and have distinctive facial whiskers. And now, let's travel to the West Bengal state of India to speak with Anandita Bhatra. Today on The Dog Watch, we have the pleasure of connecting with Professor Anandita Bhatra, a behavioral biologist in Kolkata, India, who established the Dog Lab and studies free-ranging dogs. She is also Associate Dean of International Relations and Outreach at the Indian Institute of Science, Education, and Research, Kolkata. Anandita, from halfway around the world, thank you for joining us on the Dog Watch. My pleasure. I feel like I could fill this whole episode with questions about India and where you live, as I've never been there before. <laughs> but I know you agreed to talk to me about dogs, so I won't. But I wanted to ask you if you might describe just a bit about where you are in India right now, and maybe the kind of wildlife and nature that's typical of your region. Sure. So I live in this uh, small town called uh, Kalyani, which is uh, near my institute, though my institute is called the Indian Institute of Science, Education and Research, Kolkata. It's uh, a little away from the city in the suburbs. And that's very nice because we have a lot of greenery and a lot of uh, biodiversity around us. We have uh, fields where people do farming. Uh, we have uh, little, you know, kind of uh, gardens and orchards full of a lot of birds. I have a house with a garden, a small garden with uh, mango trees and jackfruit trees. And, uh, you know, uh, we grow uh, some vegetables in the garden. So uh, at any point of the day, you are going to see babblers, mainas. You know, I have a mainas family housed in my uh, one of the bathroom windows. They keep having, uh, uh, you know, new uh, uh, chicks and I cannot uh, clean the bathroom window any longer and that bathroom <laughs> has become unusable because of the stink. <laughs> so uh, we have, you know, a lot of birds and animals, cats, dogs, of course, you know, I, I don't know if you'll even hear dogs bark outside the window while I'm talking. 
Yeah. So they're, they're always they're there. And uh, cows, goats, they're always there on the streets because uh, this is in the suburbs. People keep uh, domestic animals and they let them out to, uh, you know, stroll from time to time. And uh, we do have, uh, you know, other kinds of birds also, which are not very uh, often seen in big cities. So we would have uh, birds like orioles and a lot of cuckoos. Uh, different kinds of owls so we have you know a, a rich uh, biodiversity here which is very nice because in the institute uh, we ecologists can run uh, uh, you know field and lab courses right on campus without having to go for field trips wow and the you said there's crops and agriculture around what might yes. those things be i mean you said mango trees which sounds fantastic so there are uh, paddy fields so people grow rice a lot in this region because it's uh, hot and humid we get a lot of rain uh, we are also quite close to the bay of bengal uh, the sea uh, so and we have a big river the ganga or the ganges uh, flowing just by our town so we get a lot of fish and uh, there are a lot of vegetables so you get uh, you know okra and brinjals a uh, lot of green leafy vegetables are grown here constantly tomatoes um, uh, kind of uh, uh, you know some local vegetables which people around the world might not even know which we use a lot in our food uh, potatoes so these are uh, grown regularly and we also have some fields where people grow jute jute is uh, mm. a very important crop and it's a commercial crop so we get a lot of jute here jute plantations so what with jute what part of the jute plant makes the it's rope right yeah so it's the stem uh, but interestingly when the jute plant is very young you can actually cook the leaves and eat them as a green vegetable and it's oh. very very tasty and very healthy oh. uh, it's a, a mucilaginous plant so it's uh, very nice in the summer and sure. uh, the stem when they grow tall uh, the stem is uh, what gives you the uh, final uh, you know the fiber which is mm -hmm. used for making the jute ropes oh cool Wow, did not know that. Thank you. And another quick question, where, if someone is imagining the map of India, just the sort of general shape, where are you on the main map? Like what, you said you're close to the Bay of Bengal, like where, yeah, where would so you Yeah, so a little above the Bay of Bengal, uh, next to the River Ganga. So it's like east of India, mm -hmm. uh, quite close to the sea, actually. So, and very close to the Bangladesh border. So okay. if I drive from here, I can actually reach Bangladesh border in uh, two hours. Okay, wow. All right. That helps a lot. And you were mentioning, you know, green leafy vegetables, okra, all sorts of things. Uh, you know, here in Minnesota, it's morning. I just had a bowl of oatmeal and uh, some coffee. <laughs> um, I'm curious, you, you probably just had dinner or would have had dinner. What what kinds of things do you eat for dinner? Like, it's a, probably quite different than what I would have. Uh, Bengalis are very elaborate uh, eaters. We typically have... Uh, you know, vegetables as well as uh, fish or some other uh, non-vegetarian dish in a standard uh, lunch or dinner. Uh, we have very late lifestyle, so we I haven't eaten dinner yet. Dinner <laughs> is typically a little later in the night, but oh. uh, for dinner, I will be having uh, fish and we usually eat uh, freshwater fish. 
and there is always uh, at least one vegetable dish and maybe one green leafy vegetable and uh, some uh, lentil kind of uh, stuff which comes from pulses you know different kinds of pulses we eat a lot which we call dal it's mm-hmm. a very standard uh, indian dish and we cooked in different ways in different parts of the country and uh, our main uh, a dish is the rice you know the right. simple boiled plain rice so that's a very typical bengali home food uh, that you can think of it uh, three dishes uh, with to go with rice right wow and would the fish have come out of the ganges or where would the freshwater fish come from uh, either from the ganges or uh, from uh, local uh, you know large uh, inland water bodies where uh, people cultivate fish you know there is a, a lot of pisciculture happening and local fishermen bring that to the market so uh, great that, that's very fresh and mm. very healthy and we also use a lot of spice in our food so food is like rich and spicy yeah it sounds fantastic i i'm sorry i don't think i'll be able to make it there in time for dinner so um <laughs> <laughs> i wish i could it sounds fantastic and and thanks for sort of humoring me on those questions i know you're trained as a behavioral bi- biologist ecologist and did a, i believe a good bit of work on insects and then moved eventually to found the dog lab at the university and and now study free ranging dogs can you tell me a little bit about that evolution and development of your interests sure so i did my phd on a social wasp species called robleria marginata it's a paper wasp and it's a primitive uh, society uh, unlike honeybees they don't have a queen who can be recognized at a glance so they have behavioral costs rather than morphological costs and i was studying as i like to say wasp politics Uh, mm-hmm. because i was trying to understand who would become the next queen and whether the wasps have a hidden hierarchy which is not very obvious to us observers so that was what my phd was about and i was working in the indian institute of science in bangalore in one of the best uh, behavior labs uh, probably of the world with professor raghavendra gadakkar and after i finished my phd actually when i was writing my thesis i was wondering what am i going to do next and typically in india the practices you go abroad to uh, some country in the global north and you do uh, one or two postdocs and then you want to try to come back and get a package position here that is the trend but i had a baby uh, during my phd i actually submitted my thesis on my son's first birthday and uh, <laughs> wow. so <laughs> yeah so that was his birthday present so <laughs> i was a bit reluctant to you know kind of go abroad with a little baby and then what do we do with the two body problem of my husband being a physicist and working in the industry in india already mm-hmm. uh, having finished his phd and then i was a biologist and uh, it, it was kind of a dilemma and i wanted to continue doing behavior and i was uh, not very keen on going to another social insect lab because i felt i wanted to do something different and get a different kind of exposure and at this time two institutes uh, came up in india in 2006 i submitted my thesis in 2007 so this was uh, the 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 two indian institutes of uh, science education and research the one in kolkata and one in pune and uh, they were started with this idea of creating uh, institutions where students come uh, exactly after finishing school so they do their undergrad and postgrad everything under the same umbrella with a research orientation and they get exposed to all the disciplines of science and interdisciplinary research so 
I was very keen on teaching. So my supervisor said, you know, why don't you apply to one of these ISERs and see uh, whether they'll take you. Though you're a fresh PhD, they are looking for people who are interested in teaching. So mm-hmm. they might want to take uh, you in, even though you're a fresh PhD, because they're taking in people like that. And uh, both my husband and I applied. Uh, he, of course, as a senior person, because he already had experience in the industry, and both of us got through, which was excellent. And Kolkata was anyway our hometown, so we chose Kolkata and we came here. And uh, another motivation for coming to Kolkata was that you know our child would have grandparents nearby and extended family would learn the native language, uh, which you wouldn't learn if you were in another part of India. And we were both into theater and Kolkata is a hub of theater. So that was another attraction for both of us to come to Kolkata. And then we settled here and started. And when I was applying, um, I had to submit a research proposal and I was racking my brains about what I wanted to do. And I came up with this proposal on dogs. And uh, I actually had another proposal on crows and another on uh, uh, human babies. Uh, <laughs> but the dogs uh, were my favorite. And okay. we, my supervisor and I had a discussion. And he was like, uh, why not social insects? Why not wasps and ants and bees? So I said, see, uh, you've really taught me so well. And I've done such you know, interesting work in this lab. If I wanted to study another species of social insects, I think I would just start doing the same things that you have done with the species. So I would just be repeating this on another species, which would Mm -hmm. be still interesting, but I would always be considered as your student and I would not have my own individual identity. And though I love being your student and I consider you as my mentor, I want my own identity as a researcher. And in India, that doesn't happen so easily. So I want to do something absolutely different from insects. And, you know, I tell people all the time that most supervisors I know would actually stop seeing their students' face after this. That, you know, <laughs> I, I disown you. You are not giving me, you know, any fitness uh-huh. through this. My supervisor, being uh, the you know, special person he is, he actually stood up, shook hands with me and said, you know, that's what a student should be doing, you know, finding mm. her own path. And you have really given me academic fitness uh, because you are not going to repeat what I did. And I really appreciate that. Mm. So that's how I came into dogs because I have always liked dogs. Uh, I have always befriended dogs wherever I went. And uh, I have always found them very interesting in many of the things that they do regularly. And I always thought they're very smart. Mm. So I have always been reading dog literature during my PhD, and it struck me that a lot of people work on pet dogs. They try to understand dog domestication. They try to understand how dogs and humans might have interacted before they became pets. But they do this by using dogs which are already pets, which are already exposed to humans, are being bred by humans, raised by humans. And it struck me that we have the perfect system where Dogs are living close to humans, but are not being owned by them, not being pampered by them. They are not being controlled by humans. So they are a completely independent species, but they know humans. They depend on humans a lot. They interact with humans. So hmm. these uh, uh, dogs could give us real insights into the dog-human relationship evolution in the past. And uh, that is how I came out with my initial proposal of uh, working with dogs. Great. Wow. Uh, That's fantastic. And also sheds a little bit light on how academic interests and questions actually come about. Um, 
I'm curious too. I've read in one of your papers that something like 80% of the world's dogs are free ranging and I've seen different statistics, but maybe as a start to help us understand the question of free ranging dogs in India, for example, versus the number of domestic dogs, like dogs in houses, like what is the um, dog population like in, in India with respect to free ranging with in homes? And, and then how does that compare to the rest of the world? So in India, the tradition of keeping dogs as pets is a relatively recent phenomenon. Um, it's a more modern uh, practice, I would say, because traditionally dogs have always lived outside on the streets. People have given them you know, leftovers of their meals, but their dogs have been treated as dirty animals not allowed to enter into people's homes. That has been the tradition for hundreds of years. You know, you can go back and look at texts uh, which date back to whatever, uh, uh, 980 and uh, even longer before that, even in the Indus Valley civilization, we had dogs. So uh, it's, it's like an old Indian tradition. But uh, having dogs uh, as pets is a more recent phenomenon. Even when I was growing up uh, in Kolkata, only very rich people kept dogs and that was considered as like a status symbol that you have an accession in your house. Oh, you must be very rich. Hmm. <laughs> so now there are more people who keep dogs, uh, but it's more like a Western influence rather than an Indian practice. But uh, I don't really have numbers. But if you see, you know, given a neighborhood, like in my neighborhood, uh, if I just look at my block, there are uh, perhaps like, 30 households with some apartments and some independent houses. And I see like two pet dogs. Wow. And uh, there are uh, de definitely, uh, you know, more than 15 uh, dogs on streets in this block. Right. So that would be the kind of numbers I'm talking about. Yeah. And the house, the pets in houses, would any or many of them be a purebred dog or a dog? You know, I'm thinking about what dogs look like in the United States, for example. Right? Yeah, like, so, right? so this is very like interesting. There. So most people uh, who like to keep pets uh, traditionally have been taking in purebred dogs. And, uh, you know, depending on the breed, uh, the prices go up and they're very expensive uh, to buy, to maintain. And uh, that that's why they are a uh, status symbol, right? So right. people keep dogs like Alsatians, Dalmatians, uh, German Shepherds, uh, Spaniels, uh, Labradors. And uh, of course, uh, the Indian weather does not suit most of these dogs, but people <laughs> right. uh, don't understand that. So uh, that's that's one kind of thing. But now there are more and more people who are also taking in uh, dogs from streets and adopting them as pets. So that mm. is uh, something which is happening these days a lot. And there are, you know, dog welfare groups who are trying to push for it, saying, if you want a pet dog, take one off the street and take it home. Don't buy a purebred dog. Right. But still, uh, there are more people buying dogs uh, of pure breeds than there are people who are adopting dogs from streets. Great. That's helpful. And I'm curious, um, what is the origin of these dogs? When I think about free-ranging dogs, I would think, well, these are dogs that were once domesticated, 
right? And that they went back to the streets, so to speak. Is that what we're talking about with the Indian population? Or like have those, most of those ancestors ever been domesticated, like in houses or or not? No. So Hmm. we are talking about dogs, which have lived on streets for generations. And then when I say generations, I mean hundreds of generations. Wow. So maybe thousands of generations because... No, they give birth every year or so. Right. And so that's are... right. Yeah. So, so whether they have come from the domesticated dogs uh, which lived with, uh, you know, uh, our ancestors uh, 10,000 years ago, that I can't say. But at least uh, from evidence that we have in the written literature, uh, which is also like uh, at least 2,000 years old, 1,500 years old. They have been on the streets. Right. And again, that's an interesting difference. And one of the things we're trying to do on this podcast is explore different ways that different people in the world conceptualize dogs. And for me, a free ranging dog where I grew up in central Michigan in the United States, <laughs> there there weren't dogs that were free ranging. And if that was a dog that was free ranging, that would have been absolutely a dog that someone had. It was domesticated, etc. And and from where your perspective is, you know, from where you grew up, et cetera, it's very different. And it's fascinating to think about the sort of history of those dogs. We, and, you know, where I grew up, just conceptualize dogs as domesticated, live in homes. But actually, most of the dogs in the world just don't don't live that way and, and haven't over many generations. So uh, thank you. I wonder if you, along those lines, can describe what's the life of a free-ranging dog like? What's its day like? Most of the time, they're just lying around doing nothing or, you know, sitting and panting or, uh, you know, watching the traffic go by. So they appear to be very lazy. Our data suggests that um, more than 50% of their time, they're actually uh, in the inactive mode. And that makes sense because they're uh, mammals and they're, supposed to be carnivores so you don't expect them to be running around all the time uh we were quite surprised when we found that uh, they are not really as nocturnal as they ought to be uh you would have assumed that you know they would avoid humans and try to go around fire you know and find food when humans go to sleep but we find that they really hang around when the humans are more active so it's uh, really like, you know, they are around on the streets along with people. And what we find is because this is a very hot and humid place, typically during the day after like 9 a.m., they are mostly uh, resting in the shade or you know, sleeping somewhere or hiding somewhere, moving out from time to time, uh, doing a bit of urine marking, uh, walking around and going back to rest. But it's around like uh, 3.30, 4 o'clock in the afternoons that they try to, you know, start moving around a lot more, looking for food. But then it depends on where they are. So typically in neighborhoods where people would uh, finish lunch and, you know, they would have a place to give some food for dogs after lunch, you would immediately see that the dogs are there on time uh, to come feed and go back to sleep. Uh, depending on if they are in, say, market areas where a lot of activity happens in the mornings and then again in the evenings, and in between there's nothing happening, uh, the dogs are nowhere inside. So they really uh, get attuned to the humans around them. 
And what is their day like? It's like eat, sleep, rest, bark a bit, howl a bit, uh, walk around a bit, uh, go back to sleep. <laughs> you see a favorite human, uh, run to the favorite human, wag your tail a bit, try to be pampered a bit, beg for food, uh, you know, bark a couple of times, go back to sleep. That's the kind of uh, a typical dog stage. And you mentioned the interactions with humans. What mm -hmm. is the range of interactions with humans? I know you've done research on this. Um, how would you sort of describe those interactions? Oh, it's a love-hate relationship. So there are people who absolutely adore dogs, who uh, try to go out of their ways to feed them, take them to vets, uh, adopt them as pets, give them shelter, make dens for their puppies, give them vaccines. And sometimes they even overdo this. Uh, I'll tell you a bit later why I say this. Then there is the other extreme who absolutely hate dogs, who think all dogs should be shut down and then we, our streets will be like American streets and we are going to become a developed country. Uh, so, you know, mm. the dogs on the streets are a menace. And I often hear people telling me, you know, look at the Western countries. They don't have dogs on streets and they're doing just fine. Why do we need to have dogs on streets? So that's the other extreme. Okay. But actually, the majority of the population are kind of neutral. So if there are, uh, you know, some things in the fridge that they don't want, they'll throw it out and let the dogs feed on it. Uh, if a dog comes begging while they are, uh, you know, uh, or, uh, you know uh, taking a stroll, they might take pity and buy a biscuit and throw it to the dog. But most of the time, they're going to ignore the dog. If the dogs are making a lot of noise and creating a lot of nuisance, they will even chase the dogs away. Uh, but typically, they are going to be on the whole neutral. So that is the majority of the population. Hmm. And then you mentioned sort of some people who don't like dogs or feel like they're a nuisance. What's the reality of how significant a risk it would be to be around a dog? Like, you know, certainly in my background, the dog catcher, right, was a figure in children's books, et cetera, who would, if there were a, a stray dog, you you know, the dog catcher would come and, um, you know, grab the dog and take it away to the pound, right? Because there was this sense that, like, you, you don't get in, you don't, you don't get close to stray dogs, right? right? And I'm curious there, with such a large number, what are the in interactions like that... Um, are negative? Is, are there very many? Is it a founded fear? Rabies? Like, how, how does that all work? Yeah. So it's complex, um, as expected. So mostly dogs don't attack humans. Mostly they stay away. And uh, when they interact, they try to have friendly interactions with humans. That is the majority of dog to human interactions. Much more negative interactions are initiated by humans towards dogs. That's point number one. Second, I have uh, grown up with dogs around me. I've never been bitten. My son has been cuddling dogs, random stray dogs on the streets ever since he was uh, less than two years old. Till date, he's never been bitten. And uh, this is like not because I was working on dogs, but he just wanted to cuddle every dog and every cat he came across. Right. To the extent that, you know, I have even... Um, been shocked at times because I remember we were on a trip in the mountains in the Himalayas and uh, our daughter was uh, you know 
just about two years old and our son was uh, just about seven. And I step out of the hotel room and I see that there are these two big, uh, you know, huge, uh, almost wolf-like mountain dogs. And these are stray dogs in the mountains who are lying in a field just outside the hotel. And my son is lying on them, literally, <laughs> with his head on one dog's tummy and his feet on another dog's tummy. And I asked him, whose dogs are those? Because I assumed that somebody's pet dogs. And he said, mine. I was like, excuse me, where did you find them? And he said, oh, they were here. They came wagging their tail at me. I gave them two biscuits and now they're my friends. And I'm going to keep them. And he's never been bitten in his life. He is uh, 14 years old now. So yeah. I would just give that as an example of how safe stray dogs can be on the streets. But a lot of people have fear of dogs. Uh, to some extent, it's because sometime in their uh, you know, childhood, our dog chased them when they were carrying food or something. Sometimes it's because children are uh, told that dogs will bite and they develop a fear out of this, even though they have never experienced an interaction like that. And uh, that leads to a lot of people being fearful of dogs. And then another set of people who are not scared of dogs, but they just think, you know, they bark, uh, they pee on the streets, they meet yeah. on the streets. They're just dirty animals. Right. I see. Well, it's it seems like it is complex, like so many different things. You mentioned that the dogs in the Himalaya... Um, we're a little bit bigger, et cetera. What's the, I guess, as a biologist, I would ask the question, what, what's the range of phenotypes of the dogs? And, I, and as a general person, it, well, I guess I would just say, how do the, the free-ranging dogs look and what's the range of different shapes and sizes? Are they all pretty similar or is there a lot of, um, is a lot of difference? Right. So other than in the mountains where the dogs are bigger and have more fur, uh, typically in the plains, all of them are about the same size. You don't really have too much uh, morphological uh, difference other than in the coat color. So they uh, typically have this uh, pointed but droopy ears and they have this curl tail. Uh, that is a standard phenotype. And they are either brown or black or brown and white and black and white, uh, very rarely full white dogs. And uh, the brown might be slightly light or slightly dark. Uh, that's it. Kind of. Okay. Uh, and it's are... interesting because sometimes we find dogs which look a bit different. You see very obvious uh, crossbreds between, uh, uh, you know, a purebred dog and a street dog because sometimes people are very responsible with their pets and they just, you know, let them out on the street when the pet grows older and they don't want to take care of it anymore right. or something like that. And the pet is not neutered. And then you have these crossbred dogs which have a, like a feather-like tail or uh, suddenly it has uh, much more fur than a typical uh, free-ranging dog in India. And we've seen some of these. Interestingly, it takes about two generations for the pups to get back to, to the normal mongrel uh, features. Huh. Interesting. And I'll reveal a little bit of ignorance about the local, like wild canid. I don't know, are there wild canids other than dogs there? Um, and do they hybridize at all? Again, I 
are there foxes or wolves or types of things? I again, I I'm slightly embarrassed. I'm I'm mostly an entomologist <laughs> by training, so I don't have a sense of the Indian um, uh, fauna, so to speak. But are there other anything that they would um, hybridize with? Yes. Uh, there are wolves um, in the mountains in the Himalayas. Uh, I don't have data whether they hybridize with wolves, but might be not because the ranges might be very different. Okay. But uh, we do have foxes and we do have uh, jackals, the golden jackal. Yeah. And right on our campus, there are uh, dogs, which when they were puppies, they did not uh, produce sounds like typical dog pups. They had a very weird kind of call. Uh, more like a jackal call than like a uh, dog call. The mothers are, of course, dogs. And that's how, I, that's how we call them dog pups. And they grew up into dogs and became part of the pack. Uh, but they have a very different coat color, kind of a uh, uh, lot of uh, uh, black, brown, and gray mixed uh, blotchy coats and uh, more uh, pointed snouts and pointy ears. Uh, these uh, dogs are also much more aggressive than the standard stray dogs. And we keep seeing some uh, puppies like this every year because there are jackals right on our campus at the edge. And these pups are always found uh, at the edges where, hmm. uh, uh, you know, the jackals come regularly. So, of course, they do interbreed, but we don't have observational data because jackals are very wary of people. But we do have uh, observations on these very odd looking pups. So those are hybrids, you mean? Yeah, I think so. Because I guess the other thing is that dogs don't do song learning, right? So they wouldn't learn, like, a, if it were a pup that was an actual, mm. like, a, was a, a true dog, a non-hybrid that was sort of raised around jackals or whatever, You it wouldn't learn the song or learn the vocalizations no. of a, of a no. another Unlike species, it. right? No, so, and th these pups were born to uh, dog mothers that we've seen. Okay. So uh, they they just look different. They uh, When they grow up, they bark like dogs. But when they are puppies, they make a very, very different sound from the typical dog pups. Wow. That's super cool. Um, I'm a little curious about some of the other studies, and we could talk for days, I think, about all the different interesting <laughs> questions that you're coming to. And so in the interest of just getting a sense of that, I'm curious about what you feel are some of the interesting questions. I know I saw something about milk stealing, which I'd never heard of before. Um, <laughs> also, just the pointing question, like the gestures, which I thought is really interesting, like how those dogs respond to gestures and different organisms. You know, it's a, it, the dogs are one of the organisms that does respond to human gestures. So what are some of the other things that you're interested in research-wise that people might be um, uh, able to hear about? Oh, lots. So, for example, uh, one of the studies we did was to ask whether a dog can be, you know, befriended by giving food or uh, uh, or by showing it some love. So we did a set of experiments where one set of dogs were given food every day, a piece of chicken, and another set of dogs were given just patting on the head three times and uh, then offered a piece of food by the uh, experimenter in, uh, in the hand and one piece of food on the street. And we were trying to see whether 
the dogs that are being fed are more likely to next come and take the food from the hand. But we saw that they're not. They still prefer to come and feed from the street, uh, but not make contact with the experimenter. But uh, the experimenter who was uh, petting them uh, very soon, within a matter of two days, started getting the feeding from the hand response from the dogs, uh, even though uh, he was not giving extra food to tame the dogs. And uh, that was very curious because you would assume that dogs on streets who are always hungry would uh, go for the food. But then we realized that it's actually very adaptive that they don't do this because people can lure dogs and uh, with a piece of food and then beat them up, tie them up, uh, you know, ensnare them, even uh, torture them. We have even seen people poisoning dogs. So being lured by food is not such a good idea. But hmm. somebody who shows love is more likely to be uh, a dog's friend. And uh, getting attached to a person like that is uh, more uh, smart in terms of evolutionary adaptation. And it seems that dogs learn that very fast. Uh, we also did experiments, as you said, on the pointing, and we found that uh, they're not only capable of uh, using the pointing gesture to find food, uh, but unlike pet dogs, they actually make uh, rational decisions based on the experience with the pointer. In the sense, if you point towards a bowl, the dog goes and does not find food, then you point again, the dog does not trust you, it goes to the other bowl. But if you point and the dog goes and finds food, if you point again, the dog will follow your pointing. So they are actually making more rational decisions rather than random decisions uh, huh. based on their interactions with the humans, which is uh, quite incredible. Right. And that's something that other other mammals do, right? Um, yeah. I Typically, believe... primates are uh, more rational in their uh behavior and that's what we think is a very high cognitive facility but we see dogs on streets are pretty smart right so you're saying and that the... we also see that you know it's something that develops with age so it's something that they learn because pups don't do this pups just follow pointing blindly uh the juveniles behave more like teenagers you point in one <laughs> direction they'll go the other way the adults are the ones who are rationalizing and uh, making decisions based on their immediate experiences and sort of as a as one of my last questions, I you mentioned rational behavior, and as a behavioral biologist, that means something specific to someone who's not a behavioral biologist. I think the importance of that, like the significance of say a dog being able to do that, is is maybe kind of hard to conceptualize. What 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 do you mean when you say like? that rational behavior in dogs, right? When you're pointing at the bowl and it, it kind of learns to, to trust that signal. Why is that significant or important and maybe not something we would expect from a dog? Right. So firstly, we don't expect uh, that the dogs would uh, you know, actually understand that following a point and not finding a piece of food there uh, is kind of, being cheated and then it should not trust you in the next round mm. and when a dog does this then you realize that they have this ability to make a decision and change the decision in the immediate next five minutes based on their experience with the human and these humans are not people they have met earlier they are complete strangers so they are not only able to 
you know, show a response, which is much easier. Somebody points, they're used to finding people, throw food at them, they go towards it. But they understand the pointing. They understand that an empty bowl means that they have been duped and they should not follow the pointing. So all of these together, you know, getting converted into a behavioral response in the next step means that they're really smart which is not something we have, would have expected out of dogs. And this is definitely not something people have seen in pet dogs. Yeah, it's fascinating. And thanks for clarifying that, because I think it is a significant um, cognitive ability that, that dogs have that we might not give them credit for. And, and it seems like it really comes out from, the, um, from these free-ranging dogs. Um, as a, a last question... Are there things in these dogs that, I guess, anything else that people in looking at them might not appreciate about them or, or about their behavior um, that are that similarly kind of uncommon or things you've learned or people have learned about these free-ranging dogs that just is, is anomalous? Yeah. So, you know, I often tell people that when we keep pets... We are so used to the fact that, you know, often people say dogs don't belong to streets. They belong to people's houses. They cannot live without people. And I say, please stop and look. They have their lives. They live in family groups. They have very, very intricate social dynamics. We have seen that there are grandmothers, older uh, sisters, aunts, taking care of uh, puppies. There are, uh, you know, family group, uh, as I say, fam you know, the joint family system of India is very nicely reflected in the dog groups, that there are tussles, there, so there are, there's cooperation, there's conflict. Uh, through the conflict, the mother is often helping the pups to learn a lot of things. Their pups and mother are going through conflict over sharing of food, at the same time, the mother is spending a lot of her effort and time in giving a lot of care to her pups. There are males who are showing care to the pups. They don't need to. They're promiscuously breeding animals. You wouldn't expect males to be caring for pups. But then yeah. there are males who are bringing food, who are regurgitating food for the pups, who are playing with the pups, guarding them, licking them, grooming them. Hmm. So there is a lot of you know, family level activity, group level activity, which is happening, there's a lot of bonding, there's a lot of teaching, which is happening. And when you take a pup, thinking that it does not belong in the street, oh, my God, it doesn't have a bed to sleep on, poor little puppy, I'll take it home. I often tell people, if a chimpanzee came and told you, oh, your poor little baby, it doesn't have a tree or to live on, I'm going to take it home with me to the forest, and I'm going to bring it up like my own kid. How happy are you going to be? <laughs> you might think your home is the ideal place for every creature on earth, but the yeah. dog might not think so. Yeah. So you, we give our pets a lot of love, but love might not be enough for them. They have family lives. They have social dynamics. They have very complicated uh, systems in which they're interacting in a wide network, not only within their groups, but across different groups. At night, if you stand uh, outside in the balcony here, you will hear communication happening over, uh, you know, a wide range, blocks apart. A group of dogs starts howling here and you hear responses from different directions. So there's communication happening. They yeah. have their own social network. And who are we to decide what is best for them? 
you know, we are not uh, given the power to play God. And I think that's what the problem is with the world, that we've played God for long enough and look what you've done to the world around us. And uh, we have just created these artificially, uh, you know, produced creatures who are not even dogs anymore. I don't, many of them, you know, I, I don't think a dog will identify some of the breeds as a dog uh, <laughs> because we have, you know, created them for our pleasure. Yeah. We play God. So that is something that I wouldn't have known actually myself if, if I had not studied the free-ranging dogs. Yeah. Well, you have really challenged me especially, and I think people who are listening, to think about dogs in a different way and kind of puzzle about what really is a dog. And I so appreciate that. The research you do is fascinating. And I wanted to thank you for your time. Um, I know you have... Sounds like dinner is going to be coming and you're going to have a, a, a nice late dinner. So that sounds fantastic. And I just wanted to say how much I enjoyed talking to you and getting to know you a bit here. And I wish you the best of luck with your research going forward. Thanks, Michael. It was an absolute pleasure talking to you too. Thanks again to Anandita for sharing such fascinating perspective on dogs. If you haven't done so already, pick up a photo of your dog and put it onto our hashtag feed for a chance to have it featured on an upcoming episode. And also, remember to rate and review the podcast so we can get it out to more people anywhere from Minnesota to West Bengal. Our music today is Whiskey on the Mississippi by Kevin McLeod, courtesy of Creative Commons. Until soon, this is Michael Canfield thanking you for joining us on The Dog Watch.